to end the book of Mark, and we're in chapter 15 today. We finished chapter 14 last week. We're in chapter 15. We're in verses 1 through 5 today. So I'm going to read that, follow along in your Bible, reading in the English Standard Version of the Bible. And as soon as it was morning, the chief priests held a consultation with the elders and scribes and the whole council, and they bound Jesus and led him away and delivered him over to Pilate. And Pilate asked him, are you the king of the Jews? And he answered him, you have said so. And the chief priests accused him of many things. And Pilate asked him again, have you no answer to make? See how many charges they bring against you? But Jesus made no further answer, so that Pilate was amazed. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you so much for your word that gives us eternal life because it allows us to know you as our Savior. It shows us the way to faith. And I thank you for your word. And I thank you for Jesus Christ, who we celebrate, who we worship, who we model our lives after, who we build our life upon. And God, pray today that our time in your word will allow us to take another step forward closer to you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Back in the mid-90s, I was a Braves fan like many of the people who lived in this area because they were winning and everybody likes a winner, right? And so the Braves were the team to follow. My wife, uh, she had endured way too many Braves games on TV during that time for sure. But one of my favorite players on the team was a guy named Greg Maddox. Now, what I liked about Greg Maddox was he was not somebody who appeared to be overly athletic. You looked, I mean, if you ran into this guy in a restaurant, you wouldn't be like, wow, look at that guy. He's a world-class athlete. He's a future Hall of Famer. This guy is, you know, the best pitcher in baseball. You wouldn't think that when you saw him even in his prime. He was just a a normal, average-looking Joe. But this guy was amazing, the command he had of the baseball and the way that he could just place the baseball exactly where he wanted. He He was incredible. But appearances were very misleading. You know, that's true in a lot of things. You know, you, you may know somebody who comes across just as a very average Joe, but in, in reality, this is a very, very rich person. Or I've been around a lot of people who give the appearance like they're very wealthy when the opposite is true. They're barely making ends meet. So we can't really base a lot on appearance. And so as we're thinking about Jesus at his religious trial, which we looked at last week, we think about what's going on there, and we think about the, the guards and those who are observing, like where Peter was around the fire looking up, observing this trial, and I'm sure as you saw Jesus there being held against his will, so to speak, as Jesus was being put on trial for crimes he did not commit, I'm sure that there were people sitting here thinking, is this guy really who he says he is? Here's the person who's claiming to be the king of the Jews, a person who's claiming to be God, the creator of the universe, and he's sitting here being controlled by people. Or as the guards were slapping him, they put a blindfold around Jesus, and they took turns punching him and mocking him and saying, okay, prophesy, which one of us hit you? And there was spit running down his face as they spat upon him. Was anyone looking at him and saying, this is our Messiah? This is the guy who's going to save Israel? No. In fact, those who followed Jesus most closely... His disciples, one sold him out, the others 
11, they abandoned him completely. His lead disciple, his main guy, cursed and called down curses from God and saying, I don't even know who this guy is. The multitudes, the crowds who just a few days earlier were bringing him into Jerusalem with palm branches and celebration, many of these people will turn on him. The crowds that followed him, those who were loosely called his disciples, many of those had turned on him already. And so you see that Jesus was not fulfilling what they expected. This was not who they thought he would be. But Jesus was doing so much more because things are not like they appear. And as we've immersed ourselves into the story of Jesus, I want to just encourage you to, to just real honest discipleship words here for a second. You're not just affirming a set of beliefs. And you're definitely not just affirming some religious ritual that you go to to say you're a Christian, a follower of Jesus. And it's not about following rules. This is about a transformation that happens that when we put our faith and trust in Jesus Christ as our Savior and Lord, then His Holy Spirit comes and gives us the power to be transformed from the inside out. and We become to live more like Jesus and love like Jesus. And, and our actions, our feelings, our thinking, these things are, are, are honestly being transformed to be more like Jesus. And so becoming a Christian and being a disciple is about becoming more and more like Jesus. And here's the thing, as we lead into these next few weeks of text and, and we see Jesus going to the cross, that there is no following Jesus unless you follow him all the way to Calvary, all the way to the cross. There's no following Jesus unless we also follow him to Calvary and follow him to the cross. A verse that I quote a lot, Galatians 2.20, For I have been crucified with Christ. I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. This life I live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. You see, as a Christ follower, as someone who's put their faith in Jesus, we have died. And Scripture says our life is now hid with Christ in God. And, and, and Timothy talks about that if we die with him, we will live with him. And so there's this death that takes place. I've followed Jesus. This life is not mine any longer. It belongs to Christ. It's not my story any longer. It's God's story, empowered by Christ. It's me, through the strength of the Holy Spirit, killing old passions old desires, old way of, ways of thinking, and allowing the Word of God to begin to transform us, Romans 12, 1 and 2, our thinking to be more in line with what God desires. And it's progressive. This is, it's a journey. It doesn't happen overnight. When I learned to drive a car, I learned to drive on a stick shift. And those of you who learned to drive on a stick shift, you remember how humbling that process was. I mean, that the worst possible times of forgetting under pressure how to use the clutch and the, and the gear shift and, and killing the engine was always with multiple cars around and people blowing the horn because you're setting through a green light. And, and I, I see that more as like a model of discipleship than I do just walking in a straight line. I see, I see discipleship as sputtering and we're going, we're stopping, we're going, we're going smooth for a while, and then all of a sudden there's some puttering out. And sometimes that's the way it happens. The Christian life lurches forward rather than always moving just uniformly in a straight line. But every day we revisit the cross. 
every day we go back to the cross and we allow the cross to remind us that I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. So as we journey with Jesus, we come to the cross, the place where it began for us and the place where it began for salvation for everyone who knows him. And so verse 1, we're moving in that direction. It says that when the morning came, so they had been up all night, most of the night with their religious trial, which was really no trial at all. We know that this was just a, a sham, false witnesses being called in and, and made up stories that the false witnesses couldn't even agree and get on the same page. But we know that Jesus ultimately was convicted from the religious standpoint by his very own words. We saw this back in chapter 14, verse 61 and 62. The, uh, the, the, verse 61, the high priest asked Jesus, are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? And Jesus responded, I, I am. And, and, and when he said, I am, that had big implications. He was saying, I am divine, I am God. And you remember maybe if you listened a few weeks ago how they responded. The, the chief priests and the, and the leaders, the elders of the Sanhedrin began to tear their clothes. I mean, they were so angry. They were so distraught. How could this guy dare claim that he was God? And so Jesus is really more convicted upon his own words at this point and brought to the Roman authorities than through his own, through anything that they convicted him on. And so it's important for the Jewish religious leaders to get this trial taken care of. They want to move it along because it's Passover. They have religious duties they need to do. And during Passover, scholars tell us that Jerusalem, which is, was typically about a city of 100,000 people, would swell oftentimes upwards to 2 to 3 million people during Passover. So there were so many pilgrims, so many people there during this time. And many of the people who came from the rural towns and the, and the areas around, they supported Jesus. They saw him and for sure as a rabbi, possibly as the Messiah at this point. And so they were the ones that their public opinion had to be shifted. They had to be convinced that Jesus was not who he claimed to be. And so it was the goal of the Sanhedrin, the supreme religious court of Israel, to, to get this death penalty thing taken care of with Rome and then parade him out in front of the people as a weak and fake Messiah, as a weak and fake Messiah. And so look what they did in verse 1. They bound Jesus... And led him over to be delivered over to Pilate. Pilate, a man named Pontius Pilate, was the Roman governor of Judea during this time. And so when Rome would take over an area where they would conquer an area, they would set up a governor, one of their own people, to rule over. And Pontius Pilate, history tells us, had ruled this area of Judea for about 10 years. Now, in our mindset, maybe the fact that he led for 10 years, this guy was a pretty successful governor. The opposite is actually the case. Judea was considered a dead-end post for a Roman administrator. I mean, this was a dead-end job. It was the lowest rung on the ladder. And so the fact that he had been there so long shows that he wasn't a very good leader. He wasn't a very good governor for that area. And so he, he, Jesus has to come to Pilate because he's the one that ultimately will decide whether or not Jesus gets the death penalty, which the religious leaders would settle for nothing less than the death penalty. And so... Uh, they bring in a pilot who wasn't a nice guy. If you look at this passage, and the passage we'll look at again next week, you might think that, you know, Pilate, he's wobbling. He kind of wants Jesus not to be crucified. He kind of wants to let him off, which is true. But Pilate's not a nice guy. History tells us. Many historical accounts say this guy was a ruthless individual. He was a terrible person to the Jews. Treated them awful. And so he was even brutal, greedy, and cruel by Roman standards. 
But Pilate's main concern at this point would be, you got all these people in town. He doesn't want rights. He wants peace. He doesn't want Rome to hear about the, an uprising in Judea. And so he's trying to keep everything easy and level. And then there's also this other agenda going on here because these religious leaders, they're always playing these little games with Rome and with, with Pilate. And so he wants to put them in their place. He wants to be the one in charge. He's the one calling the shots. So Pilate found himself in a situation here as governor where he could sentence Jesus to death. But in his mind, is this still a guy that's popular among the people? Is there going to be an uprising or should I let him go? There's a lot of guests in town who like Jesus. They were just welcoming him in the previous Sunday in, in a big way, claiming he was their king, their Messiah. And so Rome had to impose the death penalty. So in verse 2, Pilate asked Jesus, because this is what really mattered to Rome, they asked Jesus, he asked Jesus, are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus answered him, you have said so. In our vernacular, it would be like saying, you said it. That's right, you said it. So Jesus affirms that he is the king of the Jews. And ironically, imagine again the perception of the religious leaders that Jesus is bound, he's bruised, he's been beat, and he's in front of a Gentile oppressor claiming that he is the king of the Jews, right? I mean, the irony there just is incredible. And the Gospel of Mark, I'm, I'm sorry, John gives us something that the Gospel of Mark doesn't give us. Mark, as we talked about for weeks, I mean, he moves quick through these accounts. He doesn't get everything. And John and the other Gospels oftentimes fill us in on some other dialogue that takes place. And in chapter 18 of John, uh, you see that Jesus elaborated a bit more than what Mark um, recorded. And in verse 36, Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this world. He's telling Pilate this. If my kingdom were this world... My servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not from the world. Then Pilate said to him, so you are a king. And Jesus answered, you say that I'm a king or you say so. For this purpose I was born and for this purpose I have come to the world. To bear witness, witness to the truth. Anyone or everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. And then Pilate said to him, what's truth? What is truth? And, and whether Pilate's getting at, you know, he's an agnostic, what can you really know truth? Or is he saying, okay, what's the truth of the situation? So are you like literally encouraging insurrection against the Romans? Or are you really the Messiah? Are you really a king? Are you claiming that? But I think it's clear to Pilate that Jesus wasn't a political threat. He wasn't a military threat. So Jesus is claiming here that in the spiritual sense, he's saying, oh, look, I'm pointing people to truth. And we know Jesus said, I am the way, I am the truth, I'm the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. So Jesus said, you know, I'm truth. And Jesus was, was saying in his words, my kingdom is higher than any empire. My kingdom is greater and more ultimate because I'm the king of kings. I'm the Lord of lords. My kingdom is a spiritual kingdom at this moment. And every emperor, king, governor, and person someday will be judged by me. You remember back in, in, in chapter 14 again, when Jesus said, that, affirmed to the chief priest that he was, um, was God, he said, and you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power, coming with the clouds of heaven. So what was he pointing them to? Something much bigger than an earthly empire. He was pointing them 
to an eternal empire, a heavenly empire, God's empire, God's kingdom coming. And he's saying, I'm the one, I am, and I come in power. I will come in power. And, and here, these religious leaders and Pilate are sitting in judgment, and they think that they're in control, and the reality is, Jesus is in complete control. No one took Jesus' life, he said, away from him. He laid it down. Jesus laid it down. And so Pilate is reluctant. He, does, he, he doesn't even want to deal with Jesus, as we're going to see next week. And, and, and from every indication in the Gospels, he's looking for any excuse to help Jesus get off the hook. And it's very likely that Jesus could have said just a few things, just could have responded to a few things and probably have gotten off on this. Because Pilate realized this guy is not claiming to lead an insurrection and be a king and he's going to run out Rome. That's not his agenda. And, but Pilate was anxious for Jesus to give him reasons. Why should you be set free? But Jesus refuses to do that. And if you're a Christian, if you're a believer, if you know the Bible, you know why Jesus refused to do that. Because what we talked about weeks ago, Jesus had already settled this in the Garden of Gethsemane. Jesus had already, already wrestled with the will of God and the fact that he would take on the justice of God against all human wickedness, against all sin and evil, and it would all come down upon him. And he prayed and he cried, if there's any way, is there, is there another option? But he said, not my will, but your will be done. Not my will, but your will be done. And so he had come to peace with that. There was nothing to respond. And then the, the, the chief priests and the religious leaders, they start to get a little nervous. And they start to accuse him of many things. They're accusing him of things like tax evasion and, and, and wanting to destroy the temple and all these things which weren't true. They were all made up charges. And so they're worried that, you know, that Jesus is going to walk. And here they're judging him. And the truth is, they're judging the judge. They are judging the judge. The one who they one day, and they realize this now, will have to kneel before and say, Jesus, you're king of kings. You're Lord of lords. And they wanted to sit in judgment of the king. And what we do with the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus determines our fate, our eternal destiny. Because Jesus ultimately is the judge. Jesus is the judge. He's coming to judge one day, but right now we sit under judgment. And what we do with Jesus determines whether God is for us or whether God is against us, whether his wrath remains on us or whether we're adopted into his family. We respond to Jesus, who is the judge, who will come seated at the right hand of power and coming in the clouds of heaven. He's coming one day. The reality is our king will return one day, and every knee will bow. In verse 4, Pilate asked him again, have you no answer to make? See how many charges they bring against you? But Jesus made no further answer. So that Pilate was amazed. He's amazed because Jesus is not defending himself. And so the creator of all things, the one who was appointed by God to judge the living and the dead, he stands in silence before his accusers. And the counterfeit judges, they want blood. 
They will settle for nothing less than blood. But what does Jesus want to offer up? The best thing that Jesus can offer up is his blood for the remission of sin. Ephesians 1.7, in Jesus we have redemption through his blood. The forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. Through his blood we have redemption. What can wash away our sins? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. What can make me whole again? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Jesus laid down his life for us. Jesus was king. From their observation in this standpoint, Jesus was no king. But Jesus said, I'm king. And I want to encourage us in our discipleship journey to do something very, very practical here. If you're a believer, if you say that you follow Jesus, remember what Jesus, we're we're learning from Jesus how to be just like Jesus How did Jesus tell his disciples to pray? Father, your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. I want my priority of my life to be your kingdom come in this moment, in this situation, even in the mundane, because most of our discipleship is lived out in the mundane moments of life. And so we want the kingdom to come in those moments. We want Jesus to to show up and and rule and reign in those moments. And that can look like kindness and love and compassion to people that don't deserve it. It means sharing and being an ambassador for the gospel. It means making clear who your loyalty lies with. It means swallowing your pride in your relationships, in your marriage. It means nurturing and guiding and discipling your children. It means that Jesus shows up, his kingdom shows up, in every facet of your life. And there's nothing that you compartmentalize and pull out and say, this is my area, and then Jesus, you have this area. Jesus is king over it all. But you've got to have the bad news before you have the good news. If Jesus is not your king, then Jesus is your judge. If Jesus is not your king, he's your judge. And you can't save yourself. You can't rescue yourself. There's nothing that you and I can do to earn favor with God. That's why Jesus came, to take on our sin, to pay the penalty that we deserve, that we should be paying. And all we have to do is crowd in faith. I need you, Jesus. I can't do this. That's all salvation is. I'm, I'm turning from this lifestyle, this way of living that's all me and me first, and it's my story, and it's about my life. And I'm turning from that way of living And I'm embracing the life of Jesus Christ and the death of Jesus Christ. And I'm putting all my hope and trust and faith in him. And sure, I'm going to putter along in this journey. And there's going to be times where I struggle and fail. But Jesus is there to empower us and give us everything we need, 2 Peter says, is to to live a life that's godly and growing and building. You know, I, I, I meet with a guy that he used to struggle with alcoholism, used to really, really, really be held captive to that. And he said, you know, I, I said, I said what, what happened? How did you get victory? And he said, you know, you got to want it. You know, you got, you got to w- get to the point where you really want something different. And that's the truth with, with the same with Jesus, that he does all the lifting. He does all the work. It's what he did on the cross. But you've got to want it. You've got to want Jesus Christ. 
And so let me ask you, as you sit in home, at home and maybe distractions around you, do you know Jesus? Is he your king? Is he your Lord? Or is he still your judge? Because you've not put your faith and trust in him. Today we have some guests that are going to join me up on stage. And we're going to talk about how that if Jesus is king, how that should change our life. And as they're coming up here, I want to encourage you today. First Sunday, today's first Sunday. Normally we do be doing communion in here, encouraging the first Sunday fast. Thank you, Michael. And I, I want to encourage you at home today to take some time to take communion as a family. I want to encourage you to get out uh, some grape juice, some wafers, some bread. If you don't have grape juice handy, you can run to the store or use something else if you don't feel comfortable doing that. And spend time today as a family taking communion. And then also, you know, while we're social distancing and we're isolating, that we may feel like we've given up a lot already. But maybe we're just binging and wasting this time on frivolous things that don't really matter. Take time, fast from yourself today, and spend intentional time doing God's will and following God's will and growing in your faith. So i got Joyce Harper here today with me. I'm going to move this stool out of the way so you can see better. And I have Michael Smith. And I asked these guys to join me today because Joyce, you may not know, Joyce uh, spends a lot of her time in Honduras. And I want to just ask you, Joyce, um, for following King Jesus, that's totally changed your life, hasn't it? It's been radical. Yes. <laughs> let, me, let me just ask you, how, tell people how your life has been radically changed. When did that happen? And what transpired to get you to the point where you said, wow, Jesus, I want to make you even a, a greater king in my life? Um, the journey has been incredible, and I could not have ever imagined that God would have this in store for us. Um, when, when God called us into the mission field and to foreign missions, it was such an honor, such a privilege that God would allow us to do this and, and to serve him in this way. And um, it's, it's very humbling, and it's uh, very rewarding, but it's also a matter of trusting him no matter what. Was this and, like a minor change in your life, or was this something radically oh, different? Yeah. It, it, was my, it, was, it was major. It was radical. We, we served God where we were. We lived in Colquitt, and we tried to you know, connect in with missions locally, and, uh, and we did that. We were active in the church. But to go to another country and where the customs are different, where the food is different, where the security is different, everything is different. It was completely dependent on God. And, um, but the, the crazy thing is that there's such a peace when you're in God's will and you know that you're going where God has sent you. Then there is no fear. And you just know that you're where God would have you in its undescribable peace and contentment. Did you question, I mean, at the time when you were filling this pool, you and Chuck were filling this pool, did you question, like, oh, you know, I don't know if I can handle that much of you being Lord in my life because i got a pretty comfortable life. Was there any questioning, or was it pretty, pretty easy decision to make? I think the biggest question was, uh, God, I'm not capable of that. <laughs> and, and God assured me, you're right, you're not capable of that, but I am. And so it's complete dependence on him because... It's, it's way out of my ball field, but God calls us all to, to witness and to, to be obedient, and so he has uh, supported us in that way. 
you bring up a good point. I mean, it, it's tough to be obedient even in your own culture and around your own people. And, you know, Michael, just thinking about, you know, I, I've just seen in your life how God has given you a greater desire for the gospel. I've just seen personally over the last few years how you just have a much bigger enthusiasm for sharing him and even related to this idea of missions. Kind of walk us on that journey. What, what began to change and how has that manifested itself into your life? Yeah, um, I guess it would really go back to childhood. My folks, my dad was in the Air Force, so we lived in the Philippines, my brother, my mother, and I. And we traveled extensively, lived in California, lived in Montana. I traveled a lot with work. So I've seen a lot of the world. I've seen that there's people out there that God loves just as much as me. So really in the last probably five or six years, Dina and Abby went on a trip to Africa and came back very excited about orphans and what they could do with other folks. Annabelle went to Jamaica and uh, came back all on fire. And I realized that even though I'd done a lot of traveling, I'd done a lot of, of talking about missions. Dean and I had always given to missions. Grace had done a lot with missions back in the missions conference when we first joined this church. But I had not been on a trip, and I didn't, had, didn't have that experience. So uh, about a year and a half ago, Jeb and I went to Indonesia and spent almost two weeks uh, with a local small, very poor fisherman and his family, and it was just so eye-opening. These are people that God loves. He loves just as much as he loves me, but they're not being told. Um, they're being told somewhat, but not near what, what they need to be. Um, Jeb and I went to China afterwards, and the taxi driver taking us to the Great Wall, I started to witness to him. It was about an hour-long drive, and he'd never heard of Jesus, and I just sat in the back seat, and I was just blown away. So God's been planting a seed, I guess my whole life, but in the last five or six years, it's really been around what he wants me to do. And I believe it's after I retire from paid work, I believe that it's to do something with missions, whether it be to support a mission effort or to go myself. Uh, but sort of what that's done uh, for the here and now, and Joyce just mentioned, uh, she used the term uh, global missions, but there's local missions as well. And, and with this focus of what God's placing in my heart, it's also opened up opportunities at work. Who can I tell at work? How can I live my life in such a way that others can ask the question, why are you different? Um, and my work does provide a great opportunity with all the travel that I do to be exposed to people. So I think God's working out something. I don't know what it's going to be, but I'm, I'm just thankful for it. What would you say, Joyce, for somebody who likes their comfortable life and they're unwilling to break out of their comfortable life, or at least they're, they, they're struggling and whether Jesus should be king of their life or not. What, from your experience and from what you've went through, what would you encourage, how would you encourage them? I would encourage them to spend a lot of time in prayer and not to run from it. Uh, there is no peace that can, that can uh, be equal to the peace that you have when you're following God whether it be serving locally, whether it be witnessing to your neighbor or um, acting in love and doing service, services, whatever is needed, or if it be going across the country to a third world country, um, whatever it is, follow God because there is no peace uh, like you could ever imagine until you're living in God's will. Yeah, I think, that, I think of the scripture from the New Testament for the joy set before him. He endured the cross, suffered the shame. And I think a lot of times 
when we question God's will, we forget about the joy that's ahead uh, in these situations. It's great to hear and great to just do life with you and see how God's working in your life. And we're, we're all, you know, driving that spiritual stick shift and we're all puttering along. Don't quit. Don't give up. Run to the cross every day. Die to yourself daily and ask the Holy Spirit just to give you the strength, give you the power, give you the insight to be in his word and to follow him in every step of the way. Let's pray. God, we thank you so much for this time we've had together. God, we thank you for those who've tuned in, uh, even if they've fought through distractions and a lot of chaos in their living room. God, I thank you that they are committed to growing in you, not just committed to a religious service, but committed to you and growing in you. And God, I thank you for each person who came out today to make this possible for them. And I pray, God, that you will be glorified, you'll be honored in all that we do. I pray that this year-plus journey in the book of Mark will just be uh, the, the foundation, the strength that we run to, that because we're running to a person, Jesus Christ, for our foundation, for our life, and we're building our life upon him. And as the parable said, when the storm comes, and the storm even we're in now comes, that we stand strong because we're built upon the rock, Jesus Christ. In his name we pray. Amen.